can be headed. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading Meet Us on Bubble Tea Row by Isaac Vargas and Remember When Denver Voted for a Sidewalk Fee? The Policies Being Tweaked by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading Former Mayor John Hickenlooper Urges Mike Johnston to Keep Up the Fight for Federal Migrant Support by Benito L. Kelty and Premium Reserve Parking? Here are 10 more upscale amenities Denver Airport could offer by Teague Bolin. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Meet us on Bubble Tea Row by Isaac Vargas. Purple Pastel Taro Slush, a popular bubble tea blend made from the Southeast Asian root vegetable, is a nutty vanilla-flavored refreshment served at Denver's Tea Street. It's one of the popular offerings of shop owners and siblings Victoria and Patrick Lamb. Seated around a syrup-brown traditional tea ceremony table brought in from Taiwan, the duo reflect on five years of their bubble tea business. I am most proud that we've built a community here, Patrick said. Denver's Bubble Tea Row has popped up along Colorado Boulevard, a busy and often chaotic roadway hugging neighborhoods like Belcaro and University Park, and home to eight businesses carrying the popular tea-based drinks on their menus. Tea Street Denver is set to open its second location in Parker this spring, expanding its reach and building on the vision that the Lamb siblings sought out to do when they first opened their shop in 2019. Pulling from their experiences abroad and at home as third cultural culture Asian Americans, the duo have carefully curated a space and a menu that celebrates the intersection of their ethnic identities. I could literally walk outside of my dorm room and there were five mom-and-pop bow and tea places within a block of each other, Victoria said, reflecting on her study abroad experience in Taiwan. I had this yearning to learn more about who I am and who we are as a family. Bubble tea is a means for us to connect with our heritage, Patrick said. I've learned that I am very much so Asian American. The two have amassed a crowd of regular customers, primarily millennials stopping by for an early morning post-meal savory boba beverage. Tea Street joined a growing list of boba neighbors along the street just before the pandemic. An alum of the University of Denver, Victoria frequently visited Lollicup Denver down the street with a group of friends. It makes me feel like there's more Asians, says Venice Yuan, founder and owner of Lollicup Denver. First opening the shop in 2003, Yuan was one of the first bubble tea owners along this strip of Denver. Dishing out popular holiday-themed drinks, Lollicup has been a hub for nearby college, high school, and middle school students. Immigrating from China to Korea and then to Denver, Yuan has seen more and more competing shops along Colorado Boulevard over the years. It's fun, but it's also very challenging, Yuan said. Ding Tea is a global bubble tea franchise originally founded in 2004 with two locations in Colorado, one in Fort Collins and another in Denver. 
owner Cindy Wynn opened the Denver branch in, in July of 2019 and has seen just how much the city has grown, particularly its interest in boba. When you crave boba, it's almost every corner now, Wynn said. Kids want to spend time with their family, go to the movies, go to a boba shop. It's just like a spot to hang out. T Street Parker will offer the same offerings and drinks with an added focus on dumplings. Guests will be able to look into a dumpling showroom and watch a dumpling machine make about 1,000 dumplings an hour. Victoria and Patrick are excited to take their vision to other parts of the state too. It's our chance to take what we've done here, what we've learned here, and take it to the next level, Patrick said. Remember when Denver voted for a sidewalk fee? The policies being tweaked by Kyle Harris. More than a year has passed since Denver voters decided to charge property owners a fee to pay for much-needed sidewalk improvements. But if you've looked around, you'll notice the sidewalks aren't looking better, and you might be wondering what's going on with that thing you voted for or against. It turns out, quite a lot of process. Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure formed a committee to review and refine Sidewalk Ordinance 307, according to a statement from the agency. The group has been meeting twice a month since August to hammer out the finer details of the ordinance. Now, the committee is proposing three big changes to the ordinance to address community concerns over high fee assessments and how they might affect lower-income homeowners, how the measure conforms to the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, TABOR, and to make sure DOTI can implement a working program to build, fix, and repair sidewalks throughout the city. I'm proud of the hard work the committee has done to develop recommendations that refine the sidewalk ordinance and details of implementation and that honor the will of the voters, says Jill Locantor, committee chair and executive director of the Denver Streets Partnership. Here's what's proposed. The first change is massive. The original ordinance assessed fees based on the linear foot of the property frontage on both residential and commercial property owners. That frustrated residents who lived on corner lots who were disproportionately charged. The proposed change, only affecting homeowners, not commercial property owners, would instead create a standard annual fee per resident that would vary based on what sort of home they lived in. Single-family home dwellers and people living in a multifamily home and a single residence that takes up an entire parcel would pay $148.64 per unit, while people living in multifamily buildings with two or more units on a parcel would pay just $27.83 per unit. For all other properties, the committee recommends keeping the sidewalk fee per linear foot of property frontage, the city noted online. The second change to the ordinance would be that in the original text, people living in neighborhoods identified as under-resourced by the city's Neighborhood Equity and Stabilization, NEST, would be eligible for a 20% discount. That would be scrapped. Instead, people in income-restricted properties, where at least 25% of the residential units are available only to low-income households, would receive an automatic 20% discount. Property owners who apply and income qualify could receive additional discounts based on income. The way those discounts would be doled out would be similar to Denver Solid Waste's recycling and trash service rebate. 
The timeline would also be hedged. The original ordinance states the work would need to be completed within nine years. The proposed tweak would state the work needs to be complete within nine years of the effective date of this section, or as soon thereafter as determined feasible by the manager of transportation and infrastructure. City analysis suggested the work could take upwards of 30 years. The ordinance would also need to specify that the initial capital investment plan should prioritize the repair or reconstruction of all existing sidewalks that are in severe disrepair that represent a safety hazard or which do not minimally comply with legally mandated accessibility standards. Love it? Hate it? The city is asking residents to give their feedback about the changes through a survey. Responses are due Thursday, February 27th. After community members weigh in over the coming weeks, the committee encourages Denver City Council to adopt the final recommended changes swiftly to avoid further delays in the implementation of the program, Lokentor said. The following articles are from Westward. Former Mayor John Hickenlooper urges Mike Johnston to keep up the fight for federal migrant support by Benito L. Kelty. Senator John Hickenlooper got his political start as mayor of Denver, and while he doesn't imagine that Mike Johnston is fast with his fists, he's encouraging the Mile High City's current mayor to keep fighting to get federal support for the migrant crisis. He might be a little too skinny to be intimidating when he's got his fists clenched, Hickenlooper says, but he's doing the heavy lifting. Every mayor around you is dealing with the same situation. It doesn't matter what community you're in, but Denver has had the bulk. Hickenlooper shared his thoughts on the job that Denver's mayor is doing handling the migrant crisis after a roundtable discussion with metro area community members who have been helping migrants find clothes, work, and food, including Andrea Ryall of Highland Mommies, Mateus Alvarez of the Dayton Day Labor Center in Aurora, and Maria Detterman with Same Cafe. More than 38,000 migrants have arrived in the city of Denver since December of 2022. Johnston predicts that the city will need to spend upwards of $180 million this year to continue handling the flood. Despite Johnston lobbying for support in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Senate killed a bipartisan border security deal that would have allocated $1.4 billion to local migrant support programs. As a result, Johnston announced $5 million in budget cuts on February 9th, starting with reductions at the Denver Motor Vehicles Division and the Department of Parks and Recreation. The citizens throughout Metro Denver are going to see their budgets cut. Their rec center is going to be closed down earlier. That's unacceptable, Hickenlooper says. This is largely a federal problem, and they can't expect the local communities to go to the forefront. The federal government has to step up now. Hickenlooper had met with Johnston before the roundtable and came away from the meeting confident that Johnston would find $180 million to get the budget back in shape and deal with the thousands and thousands of individuals who are here, Hickenlooper told reporters. He also said that he's hopeful that the feds will come up with some kind of authorization that will allow migrants to work, though no bill has yet been introduced. Hickenlooper had put out his own call for immigration reform on February 8th, after the border security bill died. 
We need a stable, legal, and fair workforce, or else our economy will collapse without immigration labor, he said in a statement that day. We're just kicking the can down the road. If we only seek to restrict legal pathways into this country, then the few that remain available will always be overwhelmed. We need an immigration system that isn't so dysfunctional that families have to risk their lives with cartels and desert crossings to seek a better life. Even though Denver residents won't be happy with the budget cuts to help cover the cost of dealing with migrants, Hickenlooper says that Johnston is a good mayor who is doing what needs to be done for the city. He is completely focused on the city, and that's where his primary focus has been and has to be, Hickenlooper adds. He's got a plan for the reality he's in right now, he says. He's serious. He's doing exactly what he has to do. He has to make those cuts, make sure that the budget doesn't get turned upside down because of this once-in-a-century massive crisis, but at the same time, he has to be fighting for the future. Hickenlooper was the mayor of Denver from 2003 to 2011. He left office to run for governor of Colorado. Term limited in that office, he made a brief run for the presidency, then dropped out and ran for the U.S. Senate. Johnston, who'd announced that he was running for the same U.S. Senate seat in 2019, dropped out of the race shortly after Hickenlooper got in. He announced that he was running for mayor in late 2022. Part of Johnston's fight for Denver will mean coming out to Washington every six weeks and swinging his fists, Hickenlooper says. And even if he fails, you go back and you work at it again. Johnston has visited D.C. twice during the past four months to plead for federal support. His first trip, along with other mayors, was November 1st through 2nd, when he met with congressional delegations, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and other key federal leaders. He returned January 15th through the 18th for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, a nonpartisan network of cities with more than 30,000 residents. It was time well spent for the benefit of Denver, Hickenlooper says. I know from when I was mayor that getting mayors to work together is a very powerful tool, and it can have a big role in dealing with this crisis. He's already respected at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Hickenlooper adds. He's already held up as someone who's taken a very difficult situation in organizing other mayors to say collectively that we can take action to make a difference. More migrants have come through Denver in the last year than anywhere else in the U.S. except for New York City, Hickenlooper says. And on a per capita basis, they've had three times the number New York has. Despite the overwhelming number of migrants coming into the city, Denver hasn't been crying into their handkerchiefs, Hickenlooper concludes. They're bringing the community together, gathering resources up, figuring out solutions to the housing issue, finding food, and trying to figure out some way they can get jobs. While Denver is dealing with the current crisis, Hickenlooper notes that migration will be a major cause for the next 50 years. There's more migration going on right now than ever in the history of the world. Economic inequality, climate change, political disruption, that's happening all over the world. People are going to migrate. Premium reserve parking? Here are 10 more upscale amenities Denver Airport could offer by Teague Bolin. 
Denver International Airport keeps making moves, even though travelers may find themselves stalled by train maintenance or glitchy scanners in the new West security in the meantime. In a twist on Frontier and other airlines with endless add-ons, DIA is introducing a series series of high-end services. This week, for example, the airport announced a new feature, premium reserve parking. DIA calls it an innovative service, but it's essentially just letting you pay a lot more for a really good parking spot and doing away with what used to be valet. For $50 a day, travelers can now reserve a rock star parking space on the fourth level anywhere from 90 days in advance to only five minutes out by visiting the parking page on the Fly Denver website. At DEN, we are constantly striving to improve the travel experience for our passengers, said CEO Phil Washington in announcing the new service. Premium Reserve Parking offers a seamless and efficient parking solution, allowing travelers to focus on their trip without the added stress of finding parking. What Washington didn't say was that the new program saves the airport money, since it doesn't have to pay valet guys anymore, much less pay for their liability insurance that covers being temporarily responsible for the safety of someone else's fancy whip. And it's also another move toward the segregation of the traveling population. Last fall, the airport introduced the new Sky Squad offerings, which let you pay for a chaperone to meet you, carry your luggage, watch that luggage for you while you freshen up, and see you to the gate like your grandma used to be able to do when you visit her back in the day. Sky Squad touts its service with the motto, that first class feeling, and DIA is up for more of that classy action. So, what else could the airport do to enhance its white glove service? Here are a few ideas, and in DIA, if you want to use any of these, you certainly may, you know, for a price. Layover Cabanas It's Kardashian-level hoity-toitiness in the middle of a public airport, a private spot with a sleeping area, luxurious lotions to moisturize your skin, a bowl of fresh fruit, and another of unsalted almonds, an overhead-mounted television that plays one of the three standards of modern film, any Marvel movie, any tearjerker, or the entire oeuvre of Wes Anderson. Rentable by the hour or overnight should a flight cancellation or weather emergency require it. Move over, Weston. Shower Suites Ideally, these would be situated right next to the layover cabanas and might be offered as a package deal. These suites would be entirely private, of course, with a dressing room and bathroom with a private toilet complete with bidet. The titular shower would be spacious with a rainfall head at both ends. There would also be a huge bathtub for soaking away the stresses of travel with Mr. Bubble. A towel boy would be extra. Russian massages. These seem to be all the rage right now, at least on the reality TV of Lifetime and Bravo. Everyone wants to get mostly naked and repeatedly beaten by Slavic women wielding branches. It's a thing. The airport could even partner with a local spa, like Ibza, to provide a traditional banya-level experience for people who want to release toxins and are tired of goat yoga, which is so 2022. Buffets. If the airport takes the above suggestions and has sleeping and hygiene covered, 
All that's left is fine dining. And we, when we say buffets, we're not talking about some supermarket-sized Chinese place or Golden Corral. We're thinking Caesar's Palace, not Circus Circus. You know, caviar and crab legs and market price items for people who don't look at prices and are only concerned with a different sort of market. Private trains. One of the perks of DIA when it opened has become a negative, unless we're flying from Concourse A, we're required to pile into a mass transit vehicle of questionable reliability in order to get to our gate. Assuming this remains necessary, and the next suggestion might negate the need for the well-heeled to hop on trains, DIA could offer single-car experiences for those not wanting to mix with the rabble. There are already two sides to the boarding area, so one side could be for first class and the other for cattle cars. Probably want to call those something else, though. Moo. Champagne limo rides directly to the tarmac. If DIA wants to jump ahead of the private train option, it could procure some town cars and limousines and simply drive those travelers more financially worthy of attention directly to their flight. All those valets are now looking for work, remember? Just like in the old movies, passengers would board via stairs leading from the tarmac to the plane, or, more likely, an escalator, so their legs would be saved from more strenuous activity. Throwback flights. Speaking of the old ways to fly, the upper classes tend to highly value appearance. They themselves are often dressed up, even when they're dressing down. Cuccinelli drawstring sweatpants, Keaton tracksuits, that sort of thing. But for those desiring a more cultured experience in the air, DIA could sponsor throwback flights, where all the seats are roomy and two by two instead of three by three where food and drinks are served without mention of cost, where there are footrests and generous tray tables and beautiful, and for some reason, Swedish, attendants who invite everyone to fly me. Yes, national airlines really ran ads with those messages back in the days when sexual impropriety wasn't such a big frickin' deal. Child-free flights. Maybe all you really want is to travel without wanting to throttle an infant who won't Stop wailing. DIA could sponsor flights guaranteed to be child-free. If you're not of drinking age, you're not allowed on board. At this higher price point, the drinks would be free, and there'd be no need to worry about carting anyone, at least not once you're aboard. Admittedly, the program would do nothing to prevent imposition by those adults who are still mentally and emotionally juvenile, but hell, it's a step. A destination experience. Clearly, if Denver International Airport institutes these ideas, it will rival the all-inclusive resorts that people pay big money to go to. So why not import a virtual reality suite that, so that would-be travelers can experience the surf, the slopes, the sand, or safari? Just come to Denver International Airport, and you don't need to travel farther at all to really go places. Special delivery. Denver has just four bike messengers left, including a North American champion by Katie Cheshire. Matt Sanchez got the call to deliver a cake to a hospital to celebrate the birth of a baby. When he arrived at the bakery, 
It was clear the bakers had no idea that the elaborate cake they put so much time into would be transported by a bike messenger. For his part, Sanchez had no idea the cake would be so big or expensive. It was one of the scariest loads I ever got. I had to do a $400 cake in rush hour traffic, Sanchez recalls. I had to look at this and problem solve in real time and figure out how am I going to keep this thing level. He managed, though, and delivered the cake safely to the new parents, but not without a lot of stress and pothole dodging. Still, it was all in a day's work for a champion bike messenger. Twenty years ago, there were dozens of bike messengers working in Denver, delivering everything from million-dollar checks to sandwich orders. But gone are the days when they'd gather at a bar at the end of a long day, swapping stories. Today, Sanchez, Jesus Mania, Antonio Hanifer, and Max Cass are the only four bike messengers remaining in the Mile High City. Sanchez mainly does food delivery for Jimmy John's, while the other three focus on delivering paper, the more traditional role of a courier. Before the pandemic, there were at least 15 of us, says 31-year-old Mena. In the early 2000s, there were like 50 guys here, and they were all for different companies. In the 90s, at one point, I was told there was over 100 guys. Mena works for Quicksilver Express Courier, which does work in six states. The company used to have a crew of 10 bike messengers in Denver. Now there's only enough work for him. I have to literally run all of Denver, like the whole damn thing, Mena says. I don't know what the mileage is. I really haven't put that much thought into it, because I honestly don't want to know. After being laid off briefly during the pandemic, when few people were working in downtown offices and everything that could be sent digitally was, Mena is just grateful he's able to work as a courier. There's still a place for messengers, he says, just a smaller place than before. The people that are left are just so dedicated, says Sanchez. We just love it. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. There's still a very big need for handoff deliveries where you need to go to a law firm and get a straight-up hard signature from somebody, adds Cass, who works for Denver Boulder Couriers and has been on the job for a decade. All the old-school attorneys downtown and old-school secretaries that have been downtown for a long time, they know exactly what we're doing. Having a trustworthy person to handle key documents and command attention can be much more effective than an email. I don't like serving people papers, Cass admits, adding that he was once held at gunpoint when he served papers to a person who, owned who owed child support and wasn't happy about it. Before switching to Denver Boulder couriers, Cass would transport 40 or 50 prescriptions a day during the pandemic. Mena still does a lot of medical work. He takes prescription orders to pharmacies and transports scans and blood samples from one medical professional to another. Sometimes he even takes bills from Denver Health to people's homes. Before the pandemic, about 20% of his work was medical. Today, it's about 90%, he says. Sanchez, who grew up in Brighton, started working as a bike messenger as a summer job when he was a music teacher. But he's been a full-time courier for about a decade. And last November, he competed in the annual North American Cycle Courier Championships held in Mexico City. 
About 200 bike messengers competed in the NACCC. I'm half Mexican. My dad was born in Chihuahua, Sanchez says. It was so meaningful to me to go and really meet and get to know the messengers down there. The contest consisted of a series of five races, three of which were held on Mexico City's streets with various fake pickups and drop-offs that simulated, simulated a day of work in the life of a, mess, a bike messenger. The finals race this year had 10 set checkpoints on a course, and you had to deduce with the manifest what order you wanted to hit these checkpoints, Sanchez recalls. Realistically, I'm not the fastest bicyclist in North America, but I was able to look at that and run a more efficient race than anybody else. It's not only an athletic feat, but it's also very much a mental game. Sanchez wasn't expecting to win. He'd competed years earlier and figured that now, at 35, he might have an even poorer showing. But he won the competition. The big prize, though, was enjoying the camaraderie in an industry that few people realize still exists. I know virtually everyone on the streets here, and I know people who used to be on the streets, Sanchez says. I mean, you don't see fishermen traveling from all over North America to have a skills competition in one city and have this built-in community, but you do with bike messengers. I could show up to any city and find a friend of a friend, and before you know it, I'm taken in. His attention to mental strategy that won him the NACCC is also what's helped him find success in Denver. Messengers work with dispatchers who let them know what orders they have to complete. From there, they have to figure out the most efficient route. When I was originally hired, I was informed that I am being paid to be faster than cars, Sanchez says. That is my sole purpose. If I cease to be faster than cars, I no longer have a purpose. The idea of being the bike messenger is being there to take the stuff where there's no parking, where there's traffic, or where it's too congested for a car. Cass says that newer food delivery people don't understand that the job isn't always about speed. It's about keeping up a good tempo while avoiding getting hurt. I'll go in a big loop, he says, usually starting his day at the post office downtown. If I have stuff that's just central downtown, I knock that out, and then I have to go to uptown and knock that out, and then I have to go to, like, Glendale or South Colorado Boulevard, stuff like that. I'm always working in some sort of route situation where I'm not going here and then, oh shit, I have to go way back down there. When a courier gets his sequence of drop-offs just right, it's satisfying. It's almost like a flow state, Sanchez says. You're in the middle of the chaos, but you're never really quite fully attached to it. You're trying to find the most efficient way to cut through it. It's honestly a joyful process. Unlike Mena, Sanchez tracks his miles. He says that a typical day ranges from 45 to 65 miles, with rare heavy days pushing toward 70 or 80. Traversing all those miles gives these messengers a view of downtown Denver that most will never have. When he starts his day early, Sanchez says, he's seen coyotes on downtown streets that have wandered up from the South Platte while things were quiet. That contrasts with the traffic and wanderers the messengers often encounter. In his 14 years as a messenger, the number of people living on the streets has definitely increased, Jennifer says. Though the early stages of the pandemic were rough for the industry, he was able to keep working, 
And even when the only other people he saw downtown were those experiencing homelessness, he never felt unsafe. Mena grew up in Boulder and still lives there, taking the bus down to Denver every day for work. From his perspective, downtown has changed for the worse because of development and rising costs leading to the displacement of longtime businesses. I'm like, oh, that place is gone, and that place is gone, he says. Denver has always had a lot of potential, but I think a lot of people just didn't know what to do with it. They kind of squandered it. Cass, who grew up in Capitol Hill and still lives there, agrees. He says downtown quickly changed from being affordable to being filled with new expensive places with less character. His own rent has doubled in the last decade. But there are still people and places who have kept the downtown he knew going, Cass says. He and the other paper messengers know all of the security guards who will let them hang out in building lobbies on cold days or share share leftover food from corporate events. All four messengers mention restaurants that are always happy to see them. One thing they haven't been too happy to see, more protected bike lanes, which they say aren't compatible with their work, especially when winter runoff from buildings or lazy shovelers who dump their snow into the street make the lanes hazardous. However, both Sanchez and Cass acknowledge that for casual rides or commuters, there are advantages to the improved infrastructure. I like seeing the attention Denver's putting into it, Sanchez says. Is it perfect? No. But is it a cool thing to see? Yes. Jennifer says he often zips through alleyways or hotel valet areas, not just to stay out of contact with cars, but also to avoid getting stuck in a bike lane. Sanchez has perfected adjusting his speed so that he's never caught at a light at 15th or 17th Street. And Mena has become an expert at knowing where to avoid construction. I know all the alleys, Cass says. I know every crack in the sidewalk. All four say they love their gigs, despite the challenges. Sanchez jokes that he actually annoys other people because he wakes up every day happy to go to work, something that isn't the case for many. They all feel privileged to have this job, while it still exists. I've had this conversation with another guy that I worked with, Mena says. I was like, I think we're the last generation to really do this the old-fashioned way. That's why I personally keep on going, because I know there's going to be one day that there's not going to be any bike messenger work to do, and I'm going to regret not doing everything I could have done when I could have. Meet Dogs in a Pile, the jam scene's newest must-see band, by Emily Ferguson. How have you not heard of them? You need to listen to their set from Peach Fest. It was insane. Seriously, these guys are going to be big. These are the types of statements that instantly accost you when you tell your hippie friends that you haven't yet seen Dogs in a Pile. The band has clearly been making waves in the jam scene, stretching its fan base, affectionately labeled the Dog Pound, beyond its hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey, throughout the East Coast, and now into the West. When we speak, the members of Dogs in a Pile are in Oklahoma, sitting at a rest stop, one of the few somewhat quiet places where they can talk while on tour. This is the Five Pieces' third time touring nationally, and Denver will get to see what all the fuss is about when Jeremy Kaplan, keys, Jimmy Law, guitar, Brian Murray, guitar, Joey Babick, drums, 
and Sam Lucid, bass, take the stage at the Bluebird Theater on Friday, February 16th and Saturday, February 17th. One listen to the band's latest live album, Doggy Bag, and you can tell that Dogs in a Pile is on to something special. While the members are young, Babic just turned 21, they're incredibly technically proficient with tight jams that showcase cascading keys and jazzy guitar solos winding around overtly positive lyricism. The band's influences may be clear. The members point to Goose, Fish, and Steely Dan, but the current sound is a solid foundation and indicator that Dogs in a Pile is successfully developing its own distinct and unique sonics. Constantly touring has helped too. This being our third year of doing this, I feel the most comfortable I have so far, just because we've done this so much already, says Murray. It just feels like we've got this under our belt a little bit more. It's exciting. It definitely feels like there's more of a flow and continuity going into this year, Law adds. Last year we played 140 shows, and this year we're set to play about 100. And the way we mapped our tour out, it's a little more spaced and more comfortable for us, so we can focus a little more on making better products. And there's a lot bigger and more exciting dates coming up this year. This isn't the band's first time in Denver. Murray says he loves seeing jazz at the Meadowlark whenever he's in town, and the members have several friends here in the jam scene. It's funny, I think there are a lot of expatriated East Coasters in Colorado, says Kaplan. Jazz has made its way into the Dogs in a Pile sound, which came together as organically as the band itself. Babic and Law have known each other since they were five years old. Our parents kind of grew up together, and later on we started going to dead shows, further shows, fill shows. We'd see a lot of concerts together, Babic says. So we grew up together, and then we had a mutual friend who introduced us to Sam, our bass player. And then Sam ended up going to Berkeley in Boston and ended up meeting Brian and Jeremy. The band released its first album, Not Your Average Beagle, in 2021, and soon Babic and Law found themselves and their band headlining the same venue they'd go to together growing up, the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, the venue where Bruce Springsteen cut his teeth. That wasn't the only milestone the band crossed. The Peach Festival was monumental for dogs in a pile. There were a lot of people there. It was pretty nuts, Babic recalls. It was cool because the year before we first played Peach, we all went together as attendees and we all watched Dopepod on the Mushroom stage, which is the same stage we played, he adds. We thought it was the sickest shit ever, and that's when Dopepod became our collective favorite jam band. It's still surreal to them that Dogs in a Pile is now considered a favorite jam band by many fans. Known for its tight improvisation, the band has songs that carry specific space for such on-the-spot movements. But those moments have also carried into the parts that are always get played the same, Babic adds. They've been kind of changing into their own kind of weird little things, which has been very fun and interesting recently. That in itself has influenced the members' new material. We are actually coming up with new music, and we just started putting more thought toward our next album, Babic says. We got the track list picked and everything, and we started working on arrangements and things. 
As for how their sound has evolved since when they first started playing, we're just better now, Law says. Way better. See for yourself at the Bluebird. You could become the latest member of the Dog Pound. Dogs in a Pile, 8 p.m. Friday, February 16th, and Saturday, February 17th, Bluebird Theater, 3317 East Colfax Avenue. Tickets are available at bluebirdtheater.net. New Music Venue, Two Moons, to open in Rhino in March, by Emily Ferguson. Jake Softs, founder and managing partner of Pearl Street Hospitality, has been working in the hospitality biz since he was 18, and now he's about to enter the live music scene with his business's new venue, Two Moons Music Hall. I actually don't have a huge amount of experience in the music industry, Softs admits. I've been working in bars, restaurants, and nightclubs my entire career, so I've been very adjacent to that industry. He founded Pearl Street Hospitality in 2015 and went on to open three bars in Denver, Hudson Hill, Lady Jane, and The Wild. Two Moons won't be just his first mint music venue. It will also be his first endeavor in Rhino, already a go-to destination for concerts, clubbing, and open mics. So the neighborhood presented the perfect foundation for Two Moons, which is taking over a storefront at 2944 Larimer Street, just a stone's throw from such other live music stalwarts as Larimer Lounge and Beacon, whose owners are also opening a new venue nearby later this year. Everyone is just incredible to work alongside, Soft says of his neighbors. The team at Ratio... They're just incredible guys and have some good ties in the music industry. Obviously, Beacon is half a block down, and they're fantastic neighbors. And then you've got Larimer Lounge a couple of blocks down. There's so many talented operators on the block, so it's really exciting to be able to join that community, because Larimer just keeps getting better and better. Softs discovered the location was available when he received a cold call in August of 2022, from the building's landlord, Stuart Zoll, whom Softs had crossed paths with many times. It was very fortuitous. I had just finished working on the business plan for it, and we were literally getting ready to start looking for a space when I got a call from him one afternoon, he recalls. Zoll told Softs that the space, which was home to a packaging facility, was available. We were there two days later, Softs says taking a tour and starting to work on the deal. Now that the transformation of the space is almost complete, Softs says that Two Moons plans to open to the public the second week of March. The venue promises local live music six nights a week, with each night dedicated to a different genre to ensure a diverse offering. There will also be monthly themed music nights, with the third Thursday of each month reserved for Latin music. It's almost exclusively small local bands, Softs adds. We want to have as much diversity in our lineup as possible. Everybody that we're going to be working with is through the local Denver community. So if it is somebody from out of town, it's going to be friends of friends or colleagues of local musicians. And most of the shows will be free. We're trying to keep as much of the programming free as possible, Softs says. There definitely will be a cover charge on certain nights, probably on weekends. It depends on the artists that we have and our general programming for that week, 
but we want this to be really open doors and as approachable as possible. Two Moons itself applies the same aesthetic as Pearl Street Hospitality's other locations. Bright, open and airy, filled with plants and a mid-century modern design. I think it's going to be a comfortable place to enjoy a cocktail, catch some music, Soft says. We really wanted to have a comfortable ambience that carries the culture of the company with it. The location includes a front patio connected by large doors, which will be open during the summer. With that block being closed, we've got some great opportunities to do some bigger concerts and fundraising events in conjunction with some of our neighbors, too, Softs adds. We have these really big windows that open up, too, so we're hoping there's music spilling out into the street. It's just going to be a really fun addition to what already exists there. For its cocktail menu, which includes sober options and its selection of small bites, Two Moons will draw from Pearl Street Hospitality's other locations and expertise. But you can tell what most excites Softs, the music and the connections it will provide. It's such a vibrant, exciting community, he says, of the local music scene. Being that my whole background is in hospitality, just really being able to be a part of this great experience and continuing to connect people in Denver is really special. It's something that I've always just truly enjoyed doing. Artist compensation is extremely important to us, he adds, so we're putting a lot of attention into the details and structure for taking care of artists. Representing that community well is extremely important to us. At the end of the day, it's just making sure the artists are having fun, our guests are having fun, and our team is having fun. We really want this thing to be an effortless, exciting, and enjoyable experience for everyone. Experience Sting's Music Through Dance in Message in a Bottle by Tony Tresca. Message in a Bottle is not your typical theater experience, and that is intentional. Although it is set to classic Sting songs, Message in a Bottle is not a musical, clarifies director and choreographer Kate Prince, whose narrative dance work has been seen in West End theatrical hits, some like it hip-hop, Into the Hoods, and Everybody's Talking About Jamie. But rather than go the traditional route, London-based company Zoo Nation created a compelling work of dance theater inspired by the stories of real refugees. From Fields of Gold to Roxanne, each iconic song is woven into a narrative that's as compelling as the melodies themselves. The story opens in the peaceful village of Bebco, where an unexpected attack throws its residents into chaos. Three siblings, Lido, Madi, and Tani, set out on perilous journeys motivated by the desire to survive and reunite. The story was inspired by an image of a little Syrian boy named Alan Kurdi. He drowned while attempting to flee Syria and washed up on a beach in Turkey, explains Prince. It's a really upsetting image. He looks like he's just asleep in his crib the way he is on the beach, and a lot of artists have turned it into artwork as well. When I saw this picture of him, my daughter was two or three years old, and I thought about how we were living parallel lives. My life in London, which was very nice, easy, and lovely, and this much more difficult reality, she continues. What would it be like as a mother to decide to put your family in a vessel to cross open water to get somewhere safe? 
That was the inspiration for the narrative. What happens to families when families are torn apart? How do you survive that? That's where it all started. As a child of the 70s, Prince is a proud, self-proclaimed superfan of both the police and Sting. Sting was the first musician she saw in concert, and she went on to see him multiple times. When this idea came up, it sort of unified my family, because all generations love his music, Prince says. I always thought that the police were just so cool. Just the rawness and edginess of those tracks made me want to dance to them. When I met my husband, he was a massive fan as well. We had some friends sing in a band at our wedding, and they played Walking on the Moon as one of our songs. It was one of those moments when I connected with my husband and family, and it was right after my wedding in 2016 that I came up with the idea of using Sting's music in a stage show. She came up with the idea, but the journey to bring the legendary musician's tunes to the production was no small feat. She had to convince Sting himself to let her use his music. After being put in touch with Universal Musical Group, Prince and Eliza Lumley, head of theater from Universal Music UK, met with Sting and his manager in a hotel lobby to pitch him the project. I had half an hour to pitch an idea to him, Prince recalls, since it's very hard to explain to someone with words what dance is going to look like, I said, the only way I can show you is if we do a workshop, so you come see what we're doing and how it makes you feel. We got his permission to workshop six songs with 13 dancers over two weeks. At the end of those two weeks, Sting and his manager came to watch, she continues. It's probably the most nervous I've ever been in my professional career, but he was lovely and so nice. I think he was intrigued by it as an art form because it's not a musical, so it feels different. After that workshop, he was interested in taking the project further, so we started developing it. One of the most challenging parts of the process was figuring out how to integrate the music without it feeling shoehorned into the action. I knew some songs were non-negotiable, Prince says, listing such hits as every breath you take, Englishman in New York, and Roxanne. So the question becomes, how do I present this in a way that doesn't feel cheesy or doesn't feel forced? That's the biggest challenge, she says. But I have such a huge team of collaborators, from choreographers to designers, and a lot of people I've worked with for a long time who I trusted to help me. I worked with Alex Lackamore, orchestrator in the, of In the Heights and Hamilton on it, and he wrote beautiful scoring moments that transition from bits of drama to the next songs seamlessly. Message in a Bottle opened at the West End Sadler's Wells Peacock Theater in January of 2020, but was forced to end its run after only a few weeks because of the pandemic. Although COVID-19 brought the world of theater to a standstill, for Prince and her team, it was a pause, not an end. When all the theaters closed, I remember being quite accepting of it, Prince says. But it was initially gutting because I thought, God, what if we did all that work and that's it? I was worried we'd never come back because theaters wouldn't survive. I don't know globally what it's like, but I do know that in London, theater is thriving because people want to go out and see stuff. Zoo Nation existed as a company, and we've been making work for 21 years, 
But the only thing that we've done outside of the UK is message in a bottle, which I totally understand because the music has a broader, more commercial appeal. What I'm really hoping is that when people are introduced to the work of Zoo Nation, it might make them curious about what other pieces are like. As Message in a Bottle prepares to take Denver by storm, its message is clear. Empathy, understanding, and resilience can triumph over adversity. I suppose my message in a bottle is to have compassion for people and their stories, Prince concludes. I want others to try and think about what people might have been through, how they've gotten to where they are, and why they've had to make the decisions that they've made. Message in a Bottle runs through Sunday, February 25th at the Buell Theater in the Denver Performing Arts Complex. Get tickets at denvercenter.org. Denver Botanic Gardens announces 2024 Summer Concert Series by Westward Staff. Warm summer nights filled with music are just around the corner, and Denver Botanic Gardens is giving us a lot to look forward to with the announcement of its 2024 Summer Concert Series. The annual outdoor series began in 1980 and has drawn crowds to the gardens ever since with stellar lineups and a beautiful setting. The series, which includes 10 concerts from June through August, is produced by the nonprofit Swallow Hill Music, which offers music lessons, concerts, and community outreach across the Mile High City. The DBG also announced the return of its Evenings Al Fresco events, intimate music experiences that take place throughout the 24-acre grounds. Artists for that series will be announced later this spring, which tick with tickets going on sale in May. So far, eight artists have been announced for the summer concert series, with such highlights as Graham Nash and Devochka. Swallow Hill and Botanic Garden members have access to pre-sale tickets for the concerts from March 13th to the 15th, and general on-sale begins March 18th. Here's the lineup. Amy Lou Harris, Thursday, June 20th. John Craigie, featuring Lori Shook of Shook Twins and special guest Langhorn Slim, Wednesday, July 10th. Devochka, Thursday, July 11th. Trombone Shorty and Orleans Avenue with Devin Gilfillian, Monday, July 22nd. Las Cafeteras and Florida Taloche, Tuesday, July 30th. Graham Nash, Tuesday, August 6th. Angelique Kidjo and Michelle Indigeo Cello, Wednesday, August 7th, and Gregory Porter, Thursday, August 15th. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.